Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb, and we get to kick the cast off with some good news for a change. I'm liking this. Uh, the iOS release of MTG Arena happened today, and it took a little bit of finagling to actually find it in the App Store, unfortunately. But once I got it and got through the massive download, it was actually it was pretty good. It was kind of a joy. So much better than I expected it to be. I think we we probably like laughed and joked about the viability of the program on phones here on the cast. And I'm willing to shut up and say I was wrong. Now, look, I I was purposefully kind of giving it a break. Like what I was playing on iOS was, was stuff that I picked because I didn't think it would be very clicky. Uh, wasn't trying to play super long matches. Just like straightforward beat down decks for the most part. But even if that's all the program can do super well, it's still impressive in that state. And the fact that I can just play games of like mono green beat down on the road or on the toilet, as I shared uh, on my Twitter account earlier today. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. I I like everyone to have that image while they're playing against me on ladder. It's great. It's It's a great change of pace and not something I expected to have access to. I'm sorry I'm roping, but I was wiping my ass. <laughs> Hold on. Let me I, actually this is the one concern I have. One of the one of the good things about Arena is how snappy it is, right? And how quick games go. Yeah. And the fact that there's now a bunch of mobile players, like it, it feels really good. But I imagine I am at least somewhat slower playing on my phone than I am on my computer. I don't think it's drastic, but it's real. And if your average match speed is slowing down by like 25% because the uh, of the addition of iOS, I do think that could be a bit of a problem. And I was a little bit surprised they just opened it up. Like I thought maybe you'd only be able to play best of one ranked or something like that on your phone. But it, it is completely open right now. And I haven't felt it dramatically in the small number of games I've played so far. But I think that's something to keep an eye on, whether the overall pace of Arena slows down a little bit with the addition of iOS. So I opened it up and poked around in the UI a little bit and was just like, okay, you know, this is a, a good chance to, you know, go through, maybe clear out some of my old decks. Like we, we have a set that's going to come out here in, I guess, a month from now. And there's like all the testing that I did to try and learn stuff for historic uh, is going to go out the window with this PT and stuff. So I was like, yeah, I'll just clean it up. That was all good. Uh, the deck builder itself, I think, has the card names like a little too large. So okay. you can only see like five cards at a time. But like you could you could scroll between the pages instead of just like having to flip a page every time. Mm-hmm. So, so I like that a lot. And then I played a couple matches. And, you know, similarly to you, I played Mono Red and uh, this white black humans deck with, you know, it's Luris. So it's only one and two drops, right? So I'm, I'm playing beatdown decks, right? I had the same thing is you where it's like, I don't really want to try and play Urian for an hour on this thing or whatever. But yeah, the games were good. My phone did not run hot. Uh, Overall, I'm just very impressed with it. And the fact that it is so accessible means that I am more likely to do things like, you know, build decks and like play a game rather than, you know, having to get up and go to my PC or something. Or I, I still have Laptop problems, kind of, uh, update on that. Like, I bought a new laptop, but, like, things still run warm. I have a cooling pad. It's just, like, this thing with a bunch of cords, and, like, everything has to be plugged in, and it's super awkward. So I'm not, like, getting getting the laptop did not really solve my, I'm not playing a lot of arena problem. But mm. the phone the phone might. So 
I'm excited. Uh, I- iPad too. I haven't tried it on my iPad yet. But I download I download it on my iPad. My iPad is kind of old though. I'm not sure if if that's going to affect things or not. But yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I I think given how well it ran on my phone, my phone's a few years old at this point. iPhone 10. I feel like iPhone 10s are like pretty comparable to older iPads. Although I I, I could be wrong on that. I really don't know where the processing power. Uh, I know that iPads are always better than phones, but obviously that changes at some point. And it probably changes pretty dramatically when it does. And also it's not like a strict one-to-one comparison, right? Like some things are better at running certain apps than other things. So right. you'll, you'll have to check that out. Uh, I, I have both an older and a newer iPad. So I'll, I'll give it a run on both of them and see how they play out. Because I am curious. I'm curious how well they optimized it across these various versions of iOS devices. Yeah, I guess I suppose I should specified that I have I have like an XS Max, which is the bigger screened iPhone. So okay. that makes things certainly more palatable. Like I can't imagine playing on like the little, you know, pocket iPhone or whatever. And I think if I do upgrade, like this is a reason to try and get like the slightly bigger screen. Uh, mm-hmm. I was like considering downsizing or whatever, but you know, with between this and like occasional Genshin impact on my phone or whatever, it's like having the extra I don't know what it is, like half inch of screen real estate seems pretty nice to me. Yeah, I agree with you. This is a big push for me. I, I'm at the point where I'm starting to think about upgrading my phone as well. And uh, I, I generally like the bigger phones. I, I had the Maxes until basically the 10 came out. And when the 10 first came out, there was no Max version available. And that's when I got it. And that's just been a good phone. Like usually Apple phones, I found myself upgrading literally all the time just because they would fall off a cliff at some point. Okay. But but this one has been good. It's, it still continues to be good. So I haven't really rushed to upgrade it. But this this is starting to like plant those seeds in my head. Like eh, maybe I would like a little bit bigger screen to be able to just play magic and better or whatever. Yeah, I guess the other thing that I might consider is just uh, switching uh, to like a ROG phone because they have like a line of gaming phones that are just like absurd. Yeah, are 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 meant to be played with, you know, things like Genshin Impact where it's like they they have like controllers that come with them and stuff like that. So, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Uh I I've also liked the bigger screen in general because especially when I was traveling a lot, uh like my phone was basically my computer. Right. Like I would I would write articles on my phone, you know, so that was basically what I was using it for and it was it was very comfortable doing that at least with the larger screen. So, yeah, it's uh a weird weird world we live in, but I like it. It's one of those things, once you get used to it, it's hard to go back to a, a smaller size. Like if you True. spend a lot of time on the larger phone, I, I know like my wife still has the the Max and when she like handles my phone, she says it feels like a, a baby's toy. Like it just looks super small to her all the time. Yeah. Major's always had one of the smaller iPhones and that's basically what I felt too. I'm just like, oh, look at it. It's so cute. Like, can you even see anything on there? Like, right. It's, right. It's so yeah. You get, you get really used to that real estate very quickly. I used to have one of those though. I don't know how I used it. If you, if you ever get a chance, like I still have some of my very old iPhones around. I've basically had like iPhones from the beginning. Just like hold the original iPhone in your hand. And, it, and it's almost laughable, honestly. Or the iPhone 4 is the one where I really notice it because it's got more squared edges. And you put it in your hand and it's absolutely minuscule and feels like a child's toy. It's so funny. <laughs> and it's, it's not that old. It really isn't. Yeah. Well... We have some other news. I wouldn't necessarily say that this is good news, but this is going to be the bulk of our cast is that Strixhaven previews uh, officially started today. We had a, a few cards like that were previewed last week sometime or whatever, but 
nothing super noteworthy. And today was kind of just like this deluge of cards. Uh, I pushed my article writing back from Wednesday to Thursday. Uh, I was going to wait until previews and pick out the sweetest card and write an article about it, like try and get that that quick turnaround, you know. And I was there. I was watching all these streams. I was refreshing Twitter and all these like, you know, preview amalgamation websites and stuff. And I didn't, I didn't really see anything I wanted to write about. So if you think back to Kaldheim, we had a similar problem at the start of Kaldheim. It, it didn't do a lot to generate excitement very quickly. And then by the time we got to the end of the set, we came around on it. Yep. That's true. I, I am in the same place as you right now. The first set of previews didn't blow me away. They certainly seem a little bit lower on power level than what we've seen in some more recent sets. A lot of cards that felt like they are using what is usually prime constructed space to maybe pay off more casual formats, which is good. I, I'm, I always support that. I think there should be more uh, diversity in packs, and there's no reason not to have good commander cards in core sets. And when I say core sets, I don't mean actual core sets. I mean like standard sets. Yeah, main um, booster releases or whatever. Right, right. So so that's all good. Really no complaint, but I, I am on board with your assessment. Nothing that I'm like, yes, this is the future of standard and I can't wait to build around this card. Yeah, the funny thing too is that there's uh, a thing called the Mystical Archive, which is uh, one per pack and it's kind of like these these fancy promo versions of cards that already exist, right? So uh, I think the first ones we saw were like Lightning Bolts, Swords to Plowshares, Opt, etc. Demonic and, Tutor. Yeah, Demonic Tutor. Uh, the Japanese ones, super, super awesome, by the way. But yep. today with the preview stuff, ju- it just seemed like it was kind of dominated by these cards and what it means like, they're going to be in booster packs on Arena so that you get the true draft experience, which then means that, you know, some of these cards are on Arena for the very first time. What is the deal with their legality and historic? And I guess there are seven of them that are just preemptively banned in historic. Uh, but some of them are, are brand new. Some of them are just like, oh, there's a cool cultivate that you can get now. Yeah. Like, it just seemed like this was what this preview day was about mostly was like, establishing the world, the colleges, the mechanics, and then talking a lot about these cards. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess if Arena is a large portion of Magic sales at this point, which I think it is pretty authoritatively based on what has come out in like earnings calls, you are okay with focusing just as heavily on something that is really only important for... Well, I guess it's not only important for Arena. It's important for Arena slash collectors, right? And how much of the paper market at this point is driven more by collection than play? I, I would say a lot, at least in this moment, where there's, there is no play. So I kind of get that approach. Maybe, maybe that's actually what's selling this set. And if you want evidence towards that fact, I mean, look no further than Time Spiral Remastered, which is basically only driven by collectors and is selling like hotcakes and just impossible to get at this point. And that's basically only on the back of these variant printings in old borders. So uh, I think there is some precedent for really focusing on the collectability aspect in your preview season. And then your number two can be arena. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Time Spiral Remastered especially has, you know, maybe 
five cards, something like that, that are very expensive in the actual set. And then the rest of the value of the set is just being propped up by the old border cards, like you said, and like the the hopes of spiking a foil ponder or thoughtsies or whatever. Right. But for preview season, and you know, again, this kind of happened during call time too, is just like you do care about the content and the Twitter buzz, I would assume, for these competitive formats. So why isn't there like more of a mix? Like, would it have been that bad to put in like a mythic or like a good rare that are very strong within these previews? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe they're not there. I, I posited that this is, if there is a response to the past year and a half of kind of overpowered stuff, I think this is about the time it would be hitting. Like if you saw Eldraine's impact on standard and were a little bit concerned about it, this I think is about the set where you'd start to see the pullback. So that's a possibility or it's just random and we try and read a lot out of tea leaves and there's a bunch of good cards coming later and it will look silly in retrospect, which is kind of what happened in call time. Because I think I even might have made that argument for call time that started to be the spot where Eldraine started to have an influence over things. So. Uh, who who knows? We'll we'll have to wait until we have the entire picture to really put an authoritative read on that situation. Agreed. Uh, I mean, like Call Time ended up being a pretty solid set. I, it, it definitely wasn't super busted, but it obviously had an impact on standard. And mm-hmm. you know, for for better or worse, I think mostly for better. But yeah, obviously we have a lot of cards uh, to get through for this set before I just say like, oh, the set is terrible. And I don't necessarily think the set is going to be terrible. I just want to know why. There wasn't a card that would, you know, get me excited to write about standard in in day one of previews. You know, I'm just kind of disappointed in that. That's all. Hopefully tomorrow will be your gift and you'll find something to write about. Uh, I, I don't think I'm going to write on the new set until the middle of next week because I'm going to do uh, still a recap of the SCG tour for this week to start. And then I think I'm going to put out a second article next week if if something catches my fancy. But yeah, no, nothing today had me like Cedric. I need to write now. Uh, certainly not that level of cards. Yeah. Uh, so, SCG Tour Call Time Championship. Yeah, yeah. It? SCG it- Tour Online Call Time Five K Championship. Something that that's this weekend. The Call Time Set Championship is this weekend. Also, that's uh, split historic and standard too. So. Oh, so this yeah. one must be Strixhaven then, right? This, this must be the first like Strixhaven qualifier SCG Tour event. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. That's cool. So yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff going on this weekend too. So that'll be fun. I don't know if they're going to do like more preview stuff during the weekend or whatever. I think that that's always kind of weird. If it, you know, you're, you're hosting this tournament and then you're like, oh, don't pay attention to call time right now. I want to talk yeah, about these yeah. new cards that you can't play with and aren't present in this tournament or whatever, but we'll see. Uh, it is a little weird. I, I think like it's hard though because you want to use the Pro Tour to advertise these new cards, and that's why like the early season Pro Tours were such a good tool. They, I mean, they did that. They were the first look at these cards, and now that they've fallen into the end of the season, I just don't like that placement whatsoever. I, I, I don't think it accomplishes anything for anyone, and I really wish we'd get back to the start of the season to do these set championships. Agreed. If if it is part of the marketing budget, I think that it is best served by marketing the set for sure. Instead I, of- in every metric, it is best served by being at the start of the set. I, it's player experience, excitement, marketing, it, it all seems to be just way better at the start. 
Yeah, I mean, you could maybe make a case for like mid-season because I know, so like if there's three months between set releases, I know that there is a significant drop-off at month two. So like sure. in between month two and three, there, there's just not a whole lot of player interest. And I think that if you did something at like month 1.5 and the pros move the format forward, maybe build some cool new decks or whatever, you can make an argument for like that could reinvigorate player interest or whatever. But I think you can't really go wrong with holding it, you know, a week or two after the set releases. You know, I think that was critical when standard was what was driving everything, but it's not anymore. And I also think like that fact leads to a, me wanting to readjust my strategy. And so where is standard or where are new cards still going to be most impactful? It's always going to be standard, but if standard isn't driving sales, how do you leverage that? Well, you do as much as you can to highlight the use of these cards in standard. So you put that as your start of season event. Here's my standard tournament. Make sure you get these cards so you can play with these new decks. End of season event, I would look to historic, honestly, and I would use like a mid set release of a historic anthology or, you know, some kind of supplemental product for historic, which you have open access to whenever you want. And then hype that, use that as your selling point for the second event in the season. And, you know, granted, I'm asking for more events, but I, I, I hope a complete rebuild of the system is what's on the table for post-pandemic situations. And that's the type of stuff I would be considering. Like, can we just have two PTs per main set release and one is standard, one is historic. They could still be on arena if that's where you want to drive things. And uh, I don't know. There, there's obviously a lot of rebuilding to do and a lot of moving pieces. And again, we just have to wait and see what's coming as far as that goes. Well, if you do pro tour at the beginning, that is standard. And then people are like, okay, cool. I'm going to copy these sweet decks. I'm going to play on ladder or whatever. Maybe there's part of a PTQ season in there. And then midway through or like two thirds of the way through, you drop historic anthologies 37 or whatever. And then rather than there being a pro tour to showcase that, I think you just kind of like force the people to play it by having a historic part of a PTQ there. Qualifier season, yeah. Yeah, and then that drives some amount of sales as far as you know, people trying to acquire these cards or whatever. Uh, I, I think something like that could work. Yeah, I, I mean, let's keep in mind that what we're discussing doesn't even consider the possibility of live play. So that's right. another thing you have to shoehorn into all of this and figure out where that sits now. And it, it's a big job. I, I think whoever is working on it now. I know there's been some turnover in that department. I, I think they have their work cut out for them. And the, the one thing you can't afford to do is just go with the status quo. Uh, you really have to rethink what you've been doing this whole time. Agreed. So we're uh, 20 minutes into our preview episode with no previews being talked about. Generally how we go. Yeah. So let's start with this quote unquote new dual land cycle. Uh, all the color pairs are enemy colored. That's all the colleges. And we get these lands that are all called Snarls for enemy colors, which are basically just the Shadowlands, and it completes the cycle of those. I like these lands. I think they're pretty low on the totem pole of quality. I think they're interesting in terms of mana-based construction. I think they require you to answer some puzzles. I like that they are both powerful and restrict what you can do at the same time. I like that there are the triomes that have good interactions with these. Eh, do they? Don't they? Like, you're really going to want to like play this, reveal a triome rather than just like play the triome? 
Uh, it depends. I, I mean, it, it's flexibility, right? Well, so it's it's not if in like 50% or greater of the situations you play the triome and then this land sucks. Well, th- think about how much of mana bases are driven by like what you want to do on turn one, turn two. That's that's often a key consideration, especially in like anything that's trying to leverage a accelerant, like a one mana accelerant or anything that's trying to thought seize early. I, I, I think all that stuff comes up a lot. And building a little bit of flexibility. Like, I don't think these are supposed to be the backbone of mana bases. It's just like, it's another option if you need access to that. And then just like, you know, in, in flat two color decks where you have a bunch of swamps and forests floating around anyway, you want your necro blossom snarl to just kind of complete what you're working with. That, that seems fine as well. Two color decks, I think they're fine. For example, the Boros one uh, would have been great in some of the showdown of the Skulls decks that I was building because the deck had like 12 basic lands mm-hmm. at least and then had the pathway and then it was like okay i'll play a mix of temples and fable passages or whatever and like this just takes the spot of those and i'm generally way happier with that instead of those but in in the context of triomes it's like if you're playing a three color deck in standard i mean you could just play pathways and not play these right so it's very rare i think to have a triome and these in the same deck Okay. Uh, and then if you're talking about historic, I feel like, you know, again, in the context of triumphs, you're better off playing like the drowned catacomb type of stuff rather than these, especially because of the tension. Like you would rather play triumph than drowned catacombs than one of these show lands and then the triumph, right? So, yeah. I, I, basically, I, I think they're fine in two color decks. I'm glad that they're there. They serve a role, but these are not super exciting and they're going to disappoint you a lot of the time. Now these saw significant play in pioneer. Is, is that still the case even after the printing of the pathways? I, so I haven't looked at pioneer too much. I would imagine that their numbers have significantly declined, but even for things like Demir inverter, right? Like choked estuary was just the most frustrating card in the deck because you kind of needed it. Uh, with things, you know, Jace Wielder of Mysteries and Inverter of Truths and Thoughtsies and stuff in the same deck, but it was like so hard to play dual lands uh, and get the basic count up. Like you had Watery Grave to free roll off of, so that was cool, but Mm -hmm. it was so hard. And then obviously the top decking it as your fourth land or whatever just really stinks. So people played them out of necessity, not because they wanted to. And if... The pathways didn't like straight up replace them in a lot of instances. I would be shocked. Like your mana base would have to be heinous in order for that to be the case, I think. So from a gameplay perspective and a deck building perspective, isn't that what you want out of your dual lands? Like don't don't you want them to ask you a question and to be like, okay, I, I have to do this. It's not necessarily that this just default makes my deck so much more powerful. It's that... There is a problem I need to solve. It is how do I cast my spells on time? And you use the best answer for that problem. And even if it disappoints you, you're still like happy about its existence, right? The problem with these, like isolated chapel and stuff like that, I think they, they do a good job of that, where you need a lot of basics and drawing it later is generally a good thing and, and not a bad thing where, you know, if you don't mm-hmm. have a basic early, sure it ETBs tap, that kind of stinks, whatever. But these, you have such a small window to actually make them really good. And then you get punished later. You get punished for having 
like two of these and no other lands, you know, and that just kind of stinks. Uh, obviously, you have the same problem with Chapel too, but like, I don't know, man. I feel like this is like the the fast lands and the corset lands, which is like all the downsides of both of them, mm. and basically none of the upsides. So, yeah, it does kind of ask you to answer questions, and that's sort of interesting. But then you find yourself just getting punished, even even if you did a good job of it, you know, like. Consider the Boros deck that I'm talking about where, you know, maybe you have 12 planes, uh, two mountains, four of these, and four pathways. I, it's definitely non-zero that this card is just going to mess you up in a lot of instances. And you're like, but I did the thing. Like, over half my lands enable this thing, and I'm playing a high land count despite being, like, an aggro deck. Mm-hmm. Why do I continually get punished by this? And it's like, that's just not a good feeling. Interesting. Uh I think that I agree with you that these are not great lands. I tend to be of the glass half full approach to dual lands in standard where I'm just like, okay, anything is good. Let's figure out the puzzle as it is. But your points towards late game frustration are totally valid. It's it's Um, not even, it's not even necessarily late game. It's like I kept a two lander and then this was the third land I drew. Yeah. 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 I, I think that is a situation that is real. And I don't know if the, cost of like some really nice starts where it all works out i i don't know if you feel that as the player and especially new players i think you have to be very cognizant of how they perceive things so them getting punished over and over could be something you're a little scared of scared of but they went back to this well and it it did take them a while i would say like a pretty long while given how soon we usually see uh dual land cycles completed so i am curious what the internal opinion of these lands are at wizards if it felt like this was something they had to like get off their plate or they thought this really added something interesting to the format yeah so like blackleaf cliff cycle took a while to complete and i I think it makes sense to complete them for sure oh yeah but man uh if this goes into Innistrad and then Innistrad has the other half of them and then, you know, like the pathways rotate or whatever and we don't have good replacements, I'm going to be very, very sad. Uh, or I guess like pathways can't rotate, right? Like it would just be the temples. Yeah, maybe that's not that big of a loss, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I said, I'm happy that these exist, but it's not like you're playing red green, you play four red green pathway. It's like, all right, you decide to play red green and then you have to make a, a really big decision about like how many of these you want to play and like what right, your mana base right. looks like. And I mean, I guess red green is not accurate because there's not a red green one of these yet, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I know what you're saying. Oh, it makes sense. I, I think that's a good breakdown. So yay, more dual lands, but also be careful and don't get got by these. Good advice. Uh, commands. Commands were spoiled a while ago, previewed a while ago, I should say. Uh, where do you want to start? You want to start like bottom up, or just start with the top ones? Uh, I don't. I don't even need to talk about the bottom ones. I I mostly want to talk about the ones that I am interested in for constructed play, and I, I think like uh, these all could see some spattering of constructed play. The red white one seems pretty medium to me. Uh, the the rest seem okay, but maybe I'm undervaluing. The versatility of all these, right? That's that's the thing about commands is that they have so many modes and you find uses for them, even if you, they are overcosted for what they do. But the ones that go really, really hard are the ones that just like provide good value with all their modes for the cost. Yeah, things like Dromokas Command, Atarkas Command, Colagons, right. like cheap commands. The, yeah, basically. But 
Also just had a lot of modes that were very good in a lot of different situations. And it was very rare that in the decks that were built around those cards that you would draw it and be like, oh man, like mm. I, this doesn't really do anything right now. And the Strixhaven commands have, I don't like more narrow abilities, I guess. Uh, let's go with Witherbloom command, BG sorcery, choose two of these four options. First one is target player mills three cards, then you return a land card from your graveyard to your hand. Second option is destroy target non-creature, non-land permanent with mana value two or less. Third option is target creature gets minus three, minus one until end of turn. And the last one is target opponent loses two and you gain two. So minus three, minus one, non-creature, non-land with mana value two or less. Like all these things are so narrow where... Obviously, if you get to like kill two things or pick up a land that you need and kill a relevant thing, then those modes are going to be really good. But I can see this card maybe just kind of like rotting there, not having a lot of really good targets. I think that this is an interesting sideboard card in older formats and possibly a main deck card in older formats, particularly formats where you have reliable access to fetch lands. I think Wither Bloom Command really goes off where it's just like, basically a cantrip at that point where you're just able to rebuy your fetch land and then do the thing uh in a lot of instances destroying target non-creature non-land permanent with mana value two or less is like answering the hate card in post-board games and being able to do that with extreme flexibility is really good and i also think the possibility of a x1 creature being impactful on the game is higher in older formats than it is in newer formats, like in newer formats, you're a lot more cognizant of just raw value. So you you want big bodies a lot of the time. And, and I think there's fewer X1s in general that see play. But when you're looking at answering a Thalia, answering a Noble Hierarch, answering an Infect creature, and then the other thing you can do is kill a Spellskite or destroy a Grafdigger's Cage. And you just see all these cascading possibilities for this card. I, I think it's a pretty exciting card, particularly in older formats. You know, if you were playing like the Hogak Modern deck from a couple seasons ago, I, I think this would probably be an important sideboard card in that deck. It just does a lot of things that that deck needed to do pretty reliably. And I, I think there's going to be multiple decks in older formats that are interested in what Witherbloom Command provides. And in standard, like I said, I think it's going to have a lot to do with how many X1s there are. And right now the answer is pretty few. So I don't really expect this to be a home run in standard. Also, you don't have fetch lands to just reliably fuel um, the cantrip mode of this. So that's a strike against it as well. So this is what I have my eye on for older formats and less so standard. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like Rain and Six is uh, certainly a big player in modern and this answers that cleanly Mm -hmm. while also doing something else, hopefully. But Green Black in Modern also has things like Abrupt Decay and Assassin's Trophy. And maybe a mix is just better, you know? But yeah. it is interesting that now you have like an actual lot of competition in those slots. And then even in, in you know, Pioneer has access to the same stuff. Yeah. So it's it's dubious to me how much this will show up. I like what you're talking about where it's like, oh, this kills a sideboard hate card for decks that care about their graveyard or something. And yeah, a lot of the time it's like you just go with the cheaper option, like the nature's claim type of thing. But depending on what your deck is, like Hogak you mentioned, where this could get value out of milling yourself or even something like the the Vengevine decks, mm. where they, pl- they play like a slower game. 
and wouldn't mind getting like that extra value and getting the extra land for like ruin crabs and hard casting venge vines and stuff like that. It's like, okay, this is kind of interesting. I could see it showing up in those spots. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't even consider the possibility where you're already in the market for self-mail and this is just another piece of that puzzle. So that that's a good usage as well. Yeah, you're like, I want to mill myself. Please give me a target for this. Otherwise, right. I, I guess I'm draining you. Like, sure. Yeah, I mean, in some instances, that'll matter, especially in like the spots with the Vengevine decks where you're like trying to often navigate to a very specific life total. So I, I don't think that's a blank mode. It's certainly not my first choice, but it, it'll come up. Yeah, I mean, Jund burns you out with double lightning bolt or like blood braid into bolts a decent yep. amount of the time. This helps yep. like it does. It does add up. I think that's the option that you're using in like desperation mode or because it kills your opponent. So it's probably going to get used the least, but it is there. It doesn't matter. Yeah, the the play of like, I don't have my third land drop. So on turn two, I buy back my fetch land and to you is like almost acceptable. If there's nothing else going on in the game, you're like, okay, this at least kept me in the game and I, I have a chance to advance my game plan, play my Liliana in the next turn or whatever. So right. that could come up. Yep, I could see it. And the other one you like is Quandrix. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. One UG instant. Choose two, again, four options. Uh, number one, return target creature or planeswalker to its owner's hands. Number two, Counter target artifact or enchantment spell. Number three, put two plus one plus one counters on target creature. And the last one is target player shuffles up to three target cards from their graveyard into their library. And, and knowing you, I'm guessing you like the last part a lot. Oh, you know, I love that last part. Just going to be shuffling up all day, slowly making my deck better as time goes on. There have been a few times recently where I'm like, and I know you've said this as well. If I just had a guy's blessing, this deck works. Yep. Yep. And we didn't. We didn't have a guy's blessing for a long time. And Quandrix Command is a extremely functional guy's blessing. I, I think the other modes are, you know, underpowered for sure. Although I could see some spots where returning a planeswalker that costs, you know, five, six mana is is quite impactful and a good deal for three mana. So uh and also there's there's good artifacts and and especially enchantments floating around, countering like a binding of the old gods and doing some of this stuff can be quite good. If you have exchanges where you're able to bounce their threat and counter their binding the old gods, it feels like you're pulling pretty far ahead there. So I, I like that. But more importantly, there's just been several times where I've noted if I had a guy's blessing, I can do a different type of deck here. And Quandrix Command is going to open that up in a pretty versatile way. Yeah, it's weird, though, because it's like I want I want guy's blessing because it's versatile. Like in worst case scenarios, you just cycle it and... In the case of this card, you're probably talking about playing a deck that doesn't have creatures because if it did have creatures, you could just kill your opponent with creatures, right? So putting two counters on something doesn't necessarily benefit you unless, I don't know, you have like giant killer or something. Uh, and then bouncing a thing is fine. Obviously, if you get to counter an artifact or enchantment and bounce something, I think that's the best application of this card. Yep. Uh, un unless you are playing the creature deck, then maybe the counter is relevant, but... It's it's going to be really weird for it to line up and you get like uh like two modes out of this thing if if you don't have uh, creatures in your deck and have this card look really good. So I'm skeptical of just playing it as a Gaia's Blessing type of thing, but like blue-green mid-range creature deck, I think that this is a fine disruptive tool. Yeah, and... Uh, I have played enough decks, especially in the colors of Simic, where I'm just like a creature deck, but also I deck myself half the time because I draw so many cards and like I need to find this one key effect and that one key effect is answered and I can't get back to it. So 
I don't know that it's a focal point. I, I think there's enough weird stuff going on, especially in Simic colors, where you're going to be able to find some kind of home for Quandrix Command. And it's not going to look like the typical decks that we see right now. It's going to be something that is even more focused on the long game. And I'm trying to think what spurred the I really want Guy's Blessing setup. And it, it wasn't like Kaldheim release. It was. It feels like it predated that. It might have been like Omnath era, actually, now that I think about it. Was, it. it was probably like those Demir control decks too. But yeah, like Omnath could have appreciated this a little bit at least. Uh you know, I mean, for the first week or so, we were killing people with Thassa's Oracle. So right. I could see one copy of this to get back an Oracle that got countered or killed. Like we were playing Balaged Recovery, which was fine, but this does a much better job of that. I guess I think of like the Risen Reef, Cavalier of Thorns, maybe Quasi-Duplicate, Agent mm-hmm. of Treachery kind of deck where those sorts of situations didn't happen regularly, but they did come up and playing a copy or two of this would have been kind of cool, I guess, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe like the, uh, something focused on the, the coma type setups. Like now there's the, the Luca deck you're starting to see. I could see a Quandrix command being fine there. If you burn through all your comas, rebind in that fashion and you get value from the plus one, plus one counters. Cause they just play a bunch of adventure creatures anyway. So it's, it's not like you don't get to use that side of the spell in that deck. Yeah, I guess adventures, you know, like, Teamer is one of the places where I could see this card, at least if uh, artifacts and enchantments are worth countering. Where mm-hmm. Greenhead is still out there too. So yeah, I mean, Embercleave too. Like you are kind yeah. of templing them out in a lot of instances, like Brazen Borrower and uh, Goldspan Dragon. So the counters are relevant. And then if you get to disrupt them on top of that, like yeah, mm. it could be pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Even the bounce spell could have some value there. Bounce a thing, plus one, plus one on your gold span dragon. Unlock a little mana. Uh, I, oh, I can see it working. No, this, this actually targets two. Yep. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, oh, wait, can, you can actually go plus mana on this, can't you? Does that work? No, because it's just being targeted once, one instance of being targeted. Is is that true? If If you choose twice and you target with... I would have to look at Goldspan Dragon, but if you return the Goldspan Dragon and I'm not saying you necessarily want to do this, but you target your own Goldspan Dragon and put two plus one plus one counters on it, do you end up plus one mana on that exchange? No, because it's just one spell going on the stack and it triggers once. Okay, okay. I guess I, I'm, not, I'm not 100%, but I'm like 99%. No, no, not, now that you say it, I think that I think that is correct. But yeah, I guess in a pinch, if you wanted to pick up your Goldspan Dragon to make a mana, you could do that with this. You could turn it into a Simeon Spirit Guide, look at you. Yeah, I mean, you probably won't be doing that too often, but it's interesting to see what is possible with this card. And I, I think there will be some interesting play patterns. And I, I do like just like alpha striking with this. That should come up quite a bit, especially with all the flying creatures that are usually seen in these colors. Yeah, yeah, I guess like bounce your blocker, put two counters on my thing is like pretty solid too. So eh, maybe. Commands are always at their best when you get to use all the modes, right? And I, I think this is probably one of the more challenging ones to get to use all the modes on. But the uniqueness of the fourth mode and the shuffling back to the library really caught my eye. Yeah. I feel like the first three contribute to you killing your opponent faster than the bottom part is going to matter unless you also are doing like Cavalier of Thorns self-mill type of stuff. So, Yeah, I, I could see that. And we are missing Cavalier of Thorns these days. So. I know. I guess like it's a graveyard hate card in a pinch as well, right? Like if an opponent is targeting something in their graveyard, this is a way to counteract that. Sure. Okay. I could see that. Uh, maybe more historic applications than anything, but 
don't know, maybe getting rid of someone's Croxa in standard is relevant. Sure. Yeah, that comes up. All right, let's talk about some Planeswalkers. Would love to. Would love to talk about these Planeswalkers. We we have three of them. They're all mythic. And spoiler alert, they're all pretty medium, I think. Uh, the first one is Professor Onyx, which is legendary Planeswalker Liliana. Four BB, five starting loyalty, static ability, Magecraft. This is a new mechanic. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, each opponent loses two life and you gain two life. So that's kind of cool. Plus one, you lose one life. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one into your hand, the rest into your graveyard. Minus three, each opponent sacrifices a creature with the greatest power among creatures that player controls. And minus eight, each opponent may discard a card. If they don't, they lose three life. Repeat this process six more times. Plus one goes deeper than we've really seen on a, a Planeswalker. Minus three is always going to kill their biggest thing. So that's kind of cool. Uh, between, I guess, like the static and the ultimate, you should win the game, I guess. But I don't know. I'm expecting more from a six mana Planeswalker, Brian. I agree with you. I, th- I think a lot of this is underwhelming. And you say like the plus one goes deeper, but there was like the the Chandra that just Wheel of Fortune you at six mana. And that seems quite a bit better than like draw one card for plus one and then you're at six loyalty, which is a big loyalty score for sure, but not unassailable. The, the interesting part of this card is definitely the Magecraft part because I, I don't think you get immediate payoff on that given how expensive this card is like it's it's very hard to just fire a bunch but if, if you do untap with it safely i could see control decks really doing a good job of padding their life total with this card and getting out of vulnerable ranges so in that way it kind of speaks to me as a more traditional planeswalker finisher like we used to see in control decks going back i don't know three four years ago can you still play that mode of magic i don't know the answer to that it, it mostly has felt invalidated but maybe professor onyx does a lot to turn that paradigm on its head and you d- you do have a real finisher out of your uh planeswalker now that both protects itself and serves as your win con and also pads your life total and can get you answers all that stuff working in concert with each other i, I sort of buy it as a finisher for blue black but that being said it's a six mana planeswalker so it better be able to do that job it's irrelevant if it doesn't if it, if it can't be a real finisher then we just don't care about this card now there are some shenanigans you can get up to. Chain of Smog is the one that everyone is talking about. The price of that card has skyrocketed over the last week since this was revealed. But it turns out there's better ways to do that that we're going to get to. And I, I am concerned about this Magecraft static ability in general. This is another ability with no mana gate on it. And I, I just feel every time we come across something that isn't gated by mana, like you don't have to pay any cost to get the benefit and you just get it infinitely, it's breakable. And like Chain of Smog is the first example of that. If you're not familiar with Chain of Smog, it's uh, I, I don't have the exact wording, but it's basically one cardless, one B, target player discards two cards. And after that, whoever was targeted can choose to copy the spell and target someone else. So you just target yourself over and over until your opponent's dead. You, you, you 20 them as soon as you chain of smog yourself. So kind of stupid, kind of lame. And like I said, there's, there's a better way to do it. So you don't even have to wait for Professor Onyx if this is actually a thing we want to invest in. So it, it feels like these things are going to become more and more prevalent the more we look at the card pool. Like this is kind of the Ral Zarek ability that we all tried to build around for a little while. And it was 
ultimately clunky and like that planeswalker wasn't very good and you had to do it in very narrow ways. And I think Professor Onyx just does a better job of being like a real card with that type of effect stapled onto it. Now, ultimately, this card is going to live or die based on how good its planeswalker modes are. And like I said, they seem fine to me. I, it wouldn't shock me at all to see like a blue-black control deck built around Professor Onyx. But I'm I'm not jaw dropped. I'm not blown away, and I'm I'm not rushing to pre-order this one. That's for sure. Yeah, uh, all that is spot on. the The thing that I'm most concerned about with it being at six mana is that yeah, it is a traditional control finisher for a planeswalker like this. But also, we're kind of in a format where people are doing things that very easily go over the top of this. Emergent right. Ultimatum is one of them. Alrond's Epiphany is the other, and it just means that. When you're doing this like smaller mid-range stuff, you're often at a sizable disadvantage, which just kind of means that that sort of thing isn't really viable. Yeah, if you're going to use this as your win condition, you need to do it on eight realistically, right? Like you, you can't just like tap out Professor Onyx and get Aloran's Epiphany into Goldspan Dragon or Genesis Ultimatum or whatever it's going to be, whatever huge busted effect your opponent has will outscale Professor Onyx. So now that you see this card is theoretically costing eight, and that's not even safe at that point, right? Because you're still super vulnerable to things like Mystical Dispute, especially in post-board games. So there there are some flaws for sure. Yep. Uh, second Planeswalker, we have uh, DFC, Rowan, and Will. So the front side is Rowan, Scholar of Sparks, 2R, 2 Starting Loyalty, both of them have a static of instants and sorceries you cast cost one less to cast. And Rowan has plus one deals one damage to each opponent. If you've drawn three or more cards this turn, she deals three damage to each opponent instead. And minus four, you get an emblem with whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, you may pay two. If you do copy that spell, you may choose new targets for the copy. You want me to read the backside and then we'll talk about it? Sure. Okay. Backside is Will, Scholar of Frost, four starting loyalty, four U. Plus one, up to one target creature, has base power and toughness, zero two until your next turn. Minus three, draw two cards. Minus seven, exile up to five target permanents. For each permanent exiled this way, its controller creates a four, four blue and red elemental creature token. So Rowan, three mana, uh, low starting loyalty, but does give you like that goblin electromancer effect. So you, you have that giving you value. Uh, she deals some damage in the late game. She can deal more damage, but like the minus four is potentially powerful and you can kind of do it sort of fast. So maybe that's worth it. But overall, she's very, very fragile. I think both of these planeswalkers on their face are, uh, I don't think anyone's going to argue they're great planeswalkers. They are designed intentionally to be, medium and there's two ways that this card could succeed in standard the first is, is that if the sum of its parts is is more than the individual pieces so just having access to both of these effects and the fact that like you could play four of this card and you have you can play two planeswalkers from it like normally you're just hard locked into only ever having one of those on the battlefield now you get two i i think that's interesting and i i think that the backside the will side of this being able to draw two cards is like a pretty acceptable case for a five mana planeswalker assuming you're stable and like going to be able to get some additional value out of it as the game goes on that's all good but the thing that's ultimately going to determine if these see any play is how good is it to have the goblin electromancer effect how good is it to for your instant and sorcery spells you cost you cast to cost one less 
I, I sort of buy it in storm type setups. I, I don't hate it as a different type of goblin electromancer that's harder for some decks to challenge and can ultimately enable things like modern storm to play longer games in some scenarios, uh, especially against matchups like Azorius control or something where they're, they're not great at pressuring you on the battlefield and things do tend to go a little bit longer. I, I like this as a little bit of a change up type option. I could see it having some very narrow sideboard applications in that deck, but ultimately I think it's a question of how good cost reduction is. And in present standard, nothing stands out to me as, oh, this is the card I'm supposed to be combining with this. And, you know, reducing this makes it extremely powerful. So pretty low on this in terms of its standard impact, but I I could be undervaluing the backside. I think it's a very real defensive ability in one-on-one situations. It's just there's very good haste creatures. There's very good ways to go wide, and I'm not sure how important just making one thing in O2 is actually going to be. Yeah, I kind of agree with everything that you're saying. I don't think that you necessarily need a storm setup to make the Electromancer ability that great because... This is true with Magecraft too. Uh, one of the defining things about Standard right now is just the adventure creatures in general. So mm. you play this with Brazen Borrower, Bone Crusher Giant. Those are suddenly a lot cheaper. You can wait until turn four to play Rowan and then have one of those up to Protector. So that's kind of cool. Uh, Behold the Multiverse, I think, is the card that is going to keep these decks gassed up, whether you're talking about Rowan or Onyx. And... That also benefits from being able to cost a little bit less. So, yeah, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of see this in uh, like a blue red shell. But then again, like those blue red decks, I think could just benefit from playing Goldspan Dragon and just like trying to kill people. So, I don't know if this is actually going to be better. But certainly, like if you think about how the game is going to play out when you have Brazen Borrower, Bone Crusher Giant, Behold the Multiverse. Essence Scatter, Negate, Disdainful Stroke, like those sorts of things, like you're kind of going off. And uh, Alrun's Epiphany at the top end too, if you want to play a couple copies of that. Uh, And then the Rowan Emblem seems pretty solid alongside those things. It is kind of awkward though, where like if, if you ramp her up to four really quickly, you might not necessarily want to cash in on the Emblem right away because you want the static to go with the emblem at, at some point, you know, because maybe it's a little bit too man intensive. So that's kind of weird. Yeah. But yeah. That's it, it, all, it all works well together. So I don't know. I could maybe see it. Also interesting to get the, uh, a two mana reduction. If you ever have both of these sides in play at the same time, like that, True. that's a big game uh, that doesn't really come up too much in magic. So I'm fine with this card. I, I, I don't want to sound like a hater on it. I, I think it's like somewhere right in the middle. And I like when the Planeswalkers fall right in the middle. Like that, I want them to see some play. I want them to be worth building around. I don't want them to define the format for the most part. And uh, I, I think both of these are falling in a pretty sweet spot for doing that thus far. Yeah, Rowan is uh, the, the card that I almost wrote about, but it was like the, the end result was just like, oh, this kind of boring blue red deck. Like that's not super exciting or anything. So I, I chose to just defer until next week, hopefully when we see some more exciting stuff, but like it doesn't seem that bad, but what about like a burn deck with Rowan where you're, you're pushed to like, I know the burn spells are bad, but they're real. They're out there. There's things like what happens with slain fire. Is that card still even legal? I don't, I don't even know anymore. I can't keep track. It is legal. So slain fire do you have to pay three red before the adamant kicks on or does it, if you just paid only red, uh, I'll look it up. 
I just had this in, in one of my decks not that long ago. Uh, it deals three, and then if at least three red mana was spent to cast, it deals four instead. Okay, so so no benefit there from reduction from Rowan, but like, I don't, I don't know, Rowan does a bit of damage on its own. You benefit from the, the emblem, should you ever make that, by copying these type of burn spells. Royal Eruption's another one that's out there, and you know, you mentioned Bone Crusher Giant is cheaper, Royal Eruption is cheaper, and all this stuff getting nice and cheap could be actually pretty impactful in that type of deck. Yeah, and then you just need a way to gas up after you spend your entire hand. But yeah, it's it's probably just showdown on the skulls, right? You're just like splashing white. Sure. I mean And then there's even the lightning helix on the the Boros command if you're able to get to a, a higher mana count and get a little bit more burn into your deck and you know have a more diverse card, which also I guess like benefits from the cost reduction is a little bit of gas in and of itself. So eh, I, I'm not over the moon about this deck, but like you could see the pieces starting to come together. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's worth noting that like will will is splashable too, so yep, it's, it's not that difficult to just get some pathways in your deck. Right, like some yeah, pathways do a good job of that. Yep. So last planeswalker is Kasmina Enigma Sage, one GU, two starting loyalty, static ability. Each other planeswalker you control has the loyalty abilities of this plus two Scry one. Minus X, create a zero, zero, green and blue fractal creature token. Put X plus one plus one counters on it. Minus eight, search your library for an instant or sorcery card that shares a color with this planeswalker. Exile that card, then shuffle. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost. Basically, I think that this doesn't do a ton by itself and you need to pair it with other planeswalkers and i'm not sure what the minus eight does on like a black planeswalker or a red planeswalker or what the planeswalker that gets the most loyalty the easiest is so there are like some puzzles to solve here but even despite all that i'm still not super excited there are a couple points where i could see this maybe succeeding although i'm I'm skeptical like you the first is in conjunction with m21 teferi like being able to do all this stuff at instant speed seems way more appealing and just plus tiering over and over. It's going to keep that to very, very safe. So I, I think that's somewhat interesting uh, and obviously works for a curve to turn three Kazmina, turn four to fairy. Fine. I, I'm, I'm not over the moon, but it's at least a playable path forward. I think like it could be theoretically good with War of the Spark Planeswalkers that can only go down, but the problem is you're now dealing with much more powerful formats where I think Kazmina will just not do enough in those scenarios. Like playing this with Narset is cute, but it ultimately you're, you're playing a Kazmina and now you have a pretty bad card in your deck. So that's not going to pan out. The other thing that occurred to me is just like minus zero to make a zero zero and instantly get a dies trigger. I, I don't have any real use for that, but it is something that could happen. And maybe it, it just strikes me as like alarm bell. This is something weird. Being able to do that over and over, it might actually have some value, but sure. I, I can't tell you where exactly. Yeah. Kazmina into Corset Teferi is interesting because like Teferi has the uh, phasing thing, right? But other than that, they don't protect themselves that well, but they both have pretty high loyalty. So. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not that bad. That's the one setup where I'm like, this could be a real deck. And it's just a question of like, what are you unlocking by doing this type of thing? And 
uh, I, I don't know. It's just like two cards that work well together, but there's no real coherent strategy I'm building around that. And then, you know, when that's the case, I'm just like, well, I'll play the good cards and the good cards are the adventure cards. So I'm like, well, why don't I just play uh, Edgewall Innkeeper instead? And <laughs> right. I don't know why I'm playing these Planeswalkers. So yeah, the problem with standard currently. Right. Well, on to the other mechanic. We have Professor of Symbology, one dub, two one, Creature Core Cleric. When this enters the battlefield, learn. And learn is you may reveal a lesson card you own from outside the game and put it into your hand or discard a card to draw a card. And lessons are... Is it just sorceries or are there instants also? We have only seen sorceries thus far, yeah. but I, I don't know if that is scheduled to change. Yeah, so you have like this weird wishboard, but so far it seems kind of like limited only to me unless there's like something really, really good. Like there's, you know, a five mana removal spell and a three mana preordain and stuff like that. Uh, there's uh, Liliana Rare that can kill a Planeswalker or reanimate a Planeswalker, but it's still like fairly expensive. Mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly what this is going to entail. The The downside is, well, then you you just rummage. If you like don't have any lessons, you ran out of lessons, whatever, and like that seems fine to me. But this is, this is a two-mana two-one that can draw you a card. So, yes. If there uh, is even a decent lesson, I think this card is incredibly player playable and actually incredibly powerful. Yeah, same. So it just depends kind of on, on what shows up. But even if it's like, all right, we're, we're getting our three mana preordain and we just use this as like a, a really crappy clue, right? Or we use this extra card in our hand to discard to something or whatever. Like you have this extra resource that you can find a way to, to do something with. Yeah, strapping that onto a 2-1 for 2 is like, it strikes me as totally reasonable. I I would actually say I'm a little scared of this mechanic. I I want these lessons to be very bad because otherwise I start getting some real like companion vibes and maybe not as intensely as companion, but like it's the same type of thing where you just have reliable access to this card in every single game, right? And you're essentially starting with eight cards in hand as soon as you make the decision to play this two mana creature. And certainly like the restrictions around companions were even less than having to play a a mediocre two mana creature it was just like free in a lot of instances so it doesn't go quite that far but there's similarities in the mechanic and it feels like another thing that is a holdover from when we thought we were going to be playing a lot of best of one and we were looking for ways to like work sideboards into best of one and now that it has been erased it feels like it has the potential to be problematic in best of three scenarios now this could be completely overblown and all these lessons could be hot garbage. If the best lesson is this confront the past sorcery, which is the planeswalker removal spell or planeswalker reanimator spell, then I'm mostly fine with it. I don't think you've broken anything by doing that. But if you start seeing some really good cards, I'm going to have some alarm bells with this mechanic. Well, I guess there's pest summoning too, which is fine. So three mana make two one ones. And it's, it's like, that's, that's not that bad. Like if you're already interested in, you know, some mopey two mana creature, then maybe you can do like some token ego wide stuff with this and you're getting a lot of bodies from one card. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I'll say there's like matchups where I could buy this being very, imp- like if mono red was a deck that was trying to go wide with a bunch of X ones and yeah. you know, you can gain a couple life, make a couple blocks. This would be quite good, but it's narrow. It's, it's not game warping and 
there has to be a very specific format before you even want this card. I'm more concerned about like the thing that everyone wants and you're just you have to play a lone creature in all your decks because you'd be foolish not to. Right. Uh, this is also a cleric, so you can recur it with aura and stuff like that if you're yeah. if you're into that thing. Clerics have been close a few times, so each cleric can matter. Uh, next up, we have Wither Bloom Apprentice, and they previewed the entire cycle of these, which is just uh, like this one is is BG for a two two, but it's always like the guild colors for a two two. They all have Magecraft and no other abilities. This is the Golgari one, which is whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. So infinite with Chain of Smog, if you're interested in that sort of thing. But uh, Magecraft is is interesting because of the ubiquity of adventure creatures. Like it, It's like, okay, well, I want to do this creature thing, but this is telling me to play a bunch of spells. How do I play a bunch of spells? Well, we already kind of have the answer to that, and we already want right. to put those in our decks anyway, so I guess we're just doing this. Yeah, and Witherbloom Apprentice, I wanted to highlight for its potential of just like being quasi-broken. Like I, I don't know that this is a thing in the formats where you can play uh, Chain of Smog, mostly because the only format you can is Legacy, and your power level is so ludicrously high there that I'm not really concerned about it. I don't, I don't think it's a problem, but I think there is a potential for this card to just do silly things, and the the more options you have, the more likely you are to find ways to exploit Wither Bloom, Bloom Apprentice. But to your point, where you just like want a bunch of adventure creatures anyway, I actually really like Archmage Emeritus, which I, I think is probably a fine card. Why don't you go ahead and hit us with that one? 2-U-U, 2-2, creature, human, wizard, magecraft, whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, draw a card. I, so I guess the downside with this is uh, eventually you just deck yourself. But uh, in in the meantime, like this is obviously very scary and a must kill. And I wouldn't be surprised if this shows up alongside like Lovestruck Beast and stuff like that. Like maybe just in small numbers, but just as is, it seems fairly strong. Yeah, I agree with you. Just because there's been a lot of scenarios where I'm playing like these adventure decks and I'm just trying to get deeper into my deck. And where that often comes up is when I'm starting to add Alrin's Epiphany to the mix. And I've done it a lot with like Toski and trying to get wide like that. But Archmage Emeritus is another way to do it. And <laughs> when you set up the Archmage Emeritus Edgewall Innkeeper combo, where you just draw from both sides of your adventure creatures, then uh, that's that's called doing it in the biz. And I will probably attempt to do that several times. And I, you know, this card's fragile, but that's not really how our removal works right now. It's it's not sizing based. You don't see a lot of shocks out there for the most part. It's it actually is more about converted mana cost, I think, in a lot of instances. And this one floats at four, so it's vulnerable to some stuff, not vulnerable to others. It's it's skipping like eliminate and things like that. So Shadow's verdict. Shadow's verdict. So I could see this scene, some spot play. I think an unchecked effect like that is powerful. And then I'm like, well, what if I just played this alongside a bunch of free spells in formats where those are still a thing? If this was loaded up with like gut shots, noxious revivals, force of negation, and you're just protecting this and cycling through your deck very quickly to get to something. Uh, I don't really have an end goal, but it's it's just an example of any time you have these static abilities that are not mana gated, I think they have the potential to cause problems. And we saw that with Edgewall Innkeeper. I could see Archmage Emeritus potentially having a similar effect, although obviously it's very different to deal with a four mana creature than a one mana creature. I still think it's worth having your eyes on, though, and having some fear of, some healthy fear of what Ar Archmage Emeritus is capable of. 
Yeah, this is not legendary either. So, I mean, you could just mm, load up point. on these if you wanted yeah. to. And you can sandbag this until turn five to play it plus uh, Heart's Desire and just immediately draw a card. Basically, like, you know, what you do with Edgewall Innkeeper every single time. Right. Uh, except, except it's it's like easier to do because the adventure stuff is like pretty cheap, you know, or it's like, I guess, roughly the same mana cost to be doing that, uh, the in- innkeeper stuff or the emeritus stuff. But it, it gives those decks some redundancy, too. It's like it's no longer like, oh, I have to kill innkeeper and nothing else. It's like, no, you have to kill innkeeper and then this thing on turn five. And mm-hmm. yeah, basically every time you you. Turn four, you play Innkeeper plus uh, Adventure Creature. They kill the Innkeeper. Turn five, you play this thing and a Heart's Desire. They have to kill this thing. Like, they're already so far behind, you know? Yeah, I feel like I come back to this point over and over, and I probably will for the time it's legal and standard. But, like, Snakes can veil, protect this, draw your sure. card right away. And then you're just curving into Goldspan Dragon where you get extra value out of your Snakes can veil and eventually getting up to your Alvin's <laughs> Epiphany. And it, it all seems to line up pretty well uh even if we're stretching across a bunch of colors for sure but the uh, look we've played a bunch of standards where it's like what engine can i assemble that's what standard has always been about here's another potential engine so i'd rather talk about this than dopey you know two mana two two that maybe it'll beat down but this is the thing that can actually be an engine and ultimately shape standard going forward yeah, now I kind of want to write about this card actually because I just thought of a couple other things where if you play this into gold span then you get to do the thing with like Sajiri shelters and snakeskin veils and stuff where it was like, yeah. oh yeah, that's pretty cool. It's free. Well, now you're actually cantripping off it and you've built your own deck full of gut shots and stuff like that. So you're like, oh, what are what are you building towards? Well, if your cards are one mana, you're you're making mana or treasures off of Goldspan Dragon. If they're snakeskin veils or the unleash card, you know, you're you're growing yeah, yeah. your your thing. It's like, okay, I could kind of see that too. Yeah, and you're, you're like you said, you're cheating a bunch of cheap spells into your deck by virtue of the adventure creatures. So if that's the route you want to go, so yeah, I, I, I buy it. There's potential. Yeah, Alrin's Epiphany draws a card. Love it. That'll, More Alrin's Epiphany. Yeah, that'll probably set up some stuff. Okay. Uh, last card we have uh, Shadrix Silver Quill. Every college was founded by an elder dragon so we have the cycle of elder dragons at mythic this is the orzov one it is three dub b for a two five legendary creature elder dragon wall of text incoming flying and double strike at the beginning of each combat on your turn you may choose two of three different abilities each mode must target a different player the first one is target player creates a two one white and black inkling token with flying, shout out to Inkland Customs. The second one is target player draws a card and loses one life. The third one is target player puts a plus one, plus one counter on each creature they control. I tried real hard. I thought about this card. I was like, can I make an article out of this card? I think I could have, but I don't think any of the decks it would have gone in would have been very good. It just feels like too much of an investment for the return. If this costs four then you could have me interested and maybe worth solving this puzzle. But at five mana, you start getting in the realm of some really powerful stuff. And if you're asking me, like, do I want Goldspan Dragon or this? It's Goldspan Dragon by a mile. And Yo, dude, this this very easily blocks and kills Goldspan Dragon. What are you uh, talking about? That's that's fine. It can try and do that all at once. I'm willing to take that uh, showdown. It's I, I'm all about the functionality and playing a little defense against the key card is is fine, but 
how hard is it going to be to get paid on these abilities? Because I, I don't think two five flying double strike for five mana is enough. And I think that the type of deck that the best of these abilities to me for you to benefit from, the thing that can outscale what you're giving your opponent is the last one. Target player puts a plus one, plus one counter on each creature they control. So that points me to like sort of a go wide-ish strategy, but then you're trying to also play this five mana standalone threat, which doesn't really jive with that all too well. Maybe there's some type of Mardu setup where you're just closer to uh, the mid-range side of things and and looking to i mean like what creatures benefit the most from getting a plus one plus one counter on them that aren't just a swarm of creatures that have gone extra wide on the battlefield nothing really stands out to me immediately yeah it's it's a lot to think about and the more i thought about it it was like well what setups actually exist where this is helping my opponent more than it's helping me like it, you know, it, there are, there, it's, it's a may, so you don't have to do it. Right. Right. But right. it's like, well, if they're creatureless, then the, the last one is fine. Yeah. Like you get, you get, that's to, a great scenario, a, a flat out great scenario. Yeah. You get to free roll one of the abilities, but it's like, well, I want to, uh, make a creature or put counters on my stuff. And then you're just like giving your opponent extra cards. Like it does do the rankle thing where you, it can help you burn them out. So, okay. Maybe that's, not that bad, but just like in a close game, having your opponent draw a card is definitely not what you want to be doing. If they're ahead on board, you know, putting counters on all their stuff or like giving them an extra token in case you want to do the other thing is also probably not that beneficial for you. So it seems tough to juggle, man. It just really does. It does. It, I mean, it, it's a good question. It's a fun question. I overall like the card. It's just hard for me to think that I'm going to figure out this equation and come out with something awesome on the back end. I think I'm coming out with a good magic card when I could just play a great magic card and not have to worry about any of that. And maybe it'll just be it's supposed to choose its spots more carefully. But thinking about it, like, so the best mode is when you're up against a creature list deck, but I think it's a creature list deck that is often going to be most ready to answer Shadrick Silver Quill, right? It, they're ready with counter magic or they're ready with the spot removal spell where you don't really get any return for your five mana investment. So yes, the punishment is max, but I think the odds of actually sticking your Shadricks are much lower in those scenarios. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting where if, if their thing is like a sorcery speed removal spell or whatever, you can play this and just immediately go to combat and get the value. Uh, so that's decent. And that's kind of what I was operating under the assumption of was that you know, you'd be able to play out things early that they would have to kill, and then maybe you'd be able to drop this, get a little bit of value out of it, and then uh, if if they don't kill this right away, I mean, it's got a lot of power, right? It could potentially kill them very quickly, but yeah, I was like, well, maybe it could draw me a card and then put counters on their zero creatures or whatever, and like, that's that's pretty fine for this mana cost, I think, but it's... Uh, situational. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very situational, and... I don't know. There, there's also the the situation where like they do have the heartless act. You know they have the heartless act, so you want to attack first to entice them to use this. Well, then you're playing this post combat, and then you're not getting an effect out of it. So it's it's really weird, man. Very strange. Weird card. card. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I don't hate it. I just am not uh, thinking it's like one of the top cards in the set or a format definer. And it, it could find a home. It wouldn't surprise me if it sees a small amount of play, uh, but just not not the set seller. That's what I would say. Well, not for standard, at least. I mean, obviously, it it being like 
an elder dragon and having things where you can benefit other players. It's like, well, this, this obviously does a bunch of stuff in commander, right? My thought was that like, you know, it's, it's a lot of stats and a lot of words and could like, how could we use this in standard? And I did not find a great solution. And maybe the actual answer is that it's not meant for standard at all. Could be. So. And like I said, I'm, I'm fine with that. Put, put those commander cards in the set and have them be like, this is the best way to do it, right? Just on the fringe of playability where you're like, well, maybe I could make this work because then it's interesting for absolutely everyone. And so in that regards, I'm, I would call Shadrix a home run, right? There, there's nobody who's not at least somewhat interested in this card. Yeah. I mean, assuming that commander folks are actually interested in this, I, I think they will be, but. I, I think so. I mean, whatever. I shouldn't even speculate about that. Based on what I understand about commander demand i would expect this card to be popular but i could be wrong yeah so the rest of the previews are like some lesson cards some magecraft cards and then this cycle of rare dfc creatures which unfortunately all seem like fairly weak to me and they're they also just all have walls of text so i'm not gonna read them but i don't know like you you were also not interested in these correct no nah, look they could have some fringe uses. Uh, like you said, they are a lot to parse in the podcast form. Uh, so if you're interested in these cards, I suggest reading them. And then if any of them crack our top 10, obviously we'll come back around to it. But I, I was of the opinion that these are all pretty low on the power scale. Although it's the same thing as like Cosmino, where you're just sitting there and you're like, oh, this does so much and I can't even wrap my head around it. And in that case, I think we way overvalued it, maybe in the same terms where we undervalue, we're undervaluing some of these cards just for their wall of text. Uh, I mean, like I said, I was in writer mode today. I was trying to figure it out. I thought about a lot of this stuff, like what kind of decks that I could put them in. I did some gatherer searches, well, scryfall searches, and like basically just came up short a lot of the time. Was like, yeah, okay, I I could build a deck around this in theory, but then that deck is not that great, right? Right. So I did think about them a lot as, as far as application, like certainly way more than when we had to like read Kasima on air because it got previewed while we were recording. Hold on, hold on. It, it's Kasima. I'm pretty sure it's Kasima. What did, what did I just say? Did I say Cosmina? Did I combine Kazmina? Cosmina is apparently a character on Akame Got Kill, if that helps you. Uh, that doesn't, nothing helps me anymore. I, I feel Ka- like I'm beyond Kosima, God of I don't, the I've voyage. never called this card Kasima, have I? Uh, I don't think so. It's have just, you? Then now that's this is my question. Have you ever oh. called this Kasima? Yeah, hundred percent of the time. Really? Yep. <laughs> God damn it! What is wrong with me? I can't. I I quit. You just heard me quit live on air. I'm done. I I can't read magic cards for a living anymore. It's but. all right, man. How about this? How about this? We we get rid of the new stuff. We go back to the old stuff, which you don't have to read because it's all it's muscle memory, right? Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I've probably learned it wrong, and I'm, I'll say that wrong anyway. But sure, let's let's do that. Maybe. So. uh yeah, this mystical archive stuff. Uh, a lot of these are new to historic. I I believe I said it was seven cards that are going to be preemptively banned. There are things like dark ritual and channel, where it's like, all right, yeah, we don't we don't want that. Uh, but then there are five cards that I want to talk about that are new to historic that are kind of interesting. The first two sort of go together. They are sign in blood, inquisition of Kozilek. Why? Does black get all the good, cheap interaction and stuff? I, I don't know, man. I, like black is a loaded up color when it comes to historic. And 
one of the things we came across in building Death Shadow deck was just like, man, it would be really nice if you had Sign in Blood or Night's Whisper, or, you know, something something to that effect. And now you just get it. Uh, so I, I think that probably matters for Historic. But the big get is obviously Inquisition of Kozilek. You now just have the disruption suite from Modern in Historic. And that's a... A completely proven disruption suite. Uh, another thing, like I was playing duress in my Death Shadow decks, I am very happily upgrading. Oh yeah, Inquisition of Kozilek, and it's it's just another huge get for Black. And they're they're able to play these game plans. They're the only color that can play these kind of more fair disruptive game plans because the other colors are not getting those pieces. And again, the decision was made: Lightning Bolt towards the Plowshares. You could have put them both in red and white, and they didn't. And so so we're going to get some more cards. And I, I think there is some fairness to LOL, they're including this card, but they won't put in Lightning Bolt and Swords to Plowshares. I get that response. I'll also say that the overall effect on a format of having a really meaningful six mana endgame card versus having Lightning Bolt is it's extremely slanted towards lightning bolt. Lightning bolt changes things far more than the six mana finisher, no matter how flashy that six mana finisher may be. So uh, I, th- I think it depends. I think it depends. Well, well, look, okay. Either I'm right or that card's broken and we'll leave the format. Like those are the only two ways it can go. Is that fair? Yes, I, I agree with that. But then I, I don't know. I think that there's something wrong with saying that like lightning bolt, no matter what will always work a format more than X when X ends up getting banned. Right. Okay. Maybe, maybe the right term is not that it warps it more. It, it's effect is more obvious, more controllable, more predictable. It, so it, it is unless, so the, the card I think that you're talking about is mind's desire, right? Which right. is, Going to be legal and historic. Yay, everyone wanted this. So if Mind's Desire does nothing, then yes, Lightning Bolt warps the format. But if Mind's Desire has like a combo-centric impact, then things like Lightning Bolt kind of cease to matter in a lot of cases. So regardless, I, I think that this is not the correct discussion to have. So Fair enough. Let me let me start a different way. Inquisition of Kozilek, Thoughtseize, Fatal Push. All this good one mana removal or one mana interaction. And then you have Sign and Blood, which historically has seen some play, has not been incredible, but I do think will be quite good here. And the rest of the colors, it's like, you know, blue, blue has opt or whatever, red has shock. And like you said, yeah, there's lightning bolt or source of plowshares in this list of cards. They are cho- choosing to not make them legal. Would lightning bolt have a negative effect on historic i don't think it would be negative no i I think it's less predictable i think it is dramatic but i don't think it would be negative i think that red decks are dramatically underpowered compared to a lot of the other stuff in the format and yes lightning bolt is an upgrade to shock but it it's marginal unless there is very specific cases of like, oh, this three toughness thing brick walled me and I couldn't kill it. And this is what leads me to lose every game. You mm-hmm. know, like if, if lightning bolt actually changed the paradigm, then okay. Yeah. Maybe you would have an issue or whatever, but I don't think that that's the case. And historically lightning bolt has been a removal spell more than it's been like a lava spike. So right. it would benefit things like Jeskai and teamer and, 
you know, maybe maybe Rectos or whatever, far more than it would benefit red aggro decks. And in the context of things like Gruel aggro, well, they're playing collected companies. So they don't have a lot of room for this stuff anyway. That is fair. What about Swords to Plowshares? I don't, th- I don't think that Swords would be bad. I think that Path to Exile would maybe be a, a better inclusion for the format, but I don't, I don't think that Swords would be bad. It's like the control decks play, you know, Baffling Ends. They have Wrath of God, Timely Reinforcements. Like they do have tools to beat up on creature decks if if they want them, and this gives you like a little bit more versatility. This probably powers up. Uh, white creature decks more than white controlling decks because I think the the white control decks kind of already have the tools whereas the the white creature decks don't really and I just I don't think that this would be that bad like yeah I, I don't know if this is controversial but I I think Swords to Plowshares is actually an easier inclusion than Lightning Bolt yeah I could see that I mean it, it, so if you have concerns about Lightning Bolt I get that but I don't think that. Swords to Plowshares versus Collected Company is going to be like, oh yeah, now everyone just plays Control or whatever. It's just not. It's not what's going to happen. And Swords would like kind of solve some happy problems like Cauldron Familiar, where people are already you know, like you are just like, I want to get this banned in Historic. Like, I, oh, I it's hate coming. This card. It's just a matter of time. Now the ball is already rolling. I'm, I got those donations rolling in for my campaign. Everything is. It's in motion. It can't be stopped at this point. Wonderful. Yeah. So. I think that swords would probably do more to make the format good. And in the case of lightning bolt, I don't know that it would make the format like quote unquote good, but it would do more to even out how good each of the colors is because right now black has a slant. And I think that green has a slant with collected company and Nissa and stuff like that. It's hard because I, I really do want to argue on like, I don't, I don't know who they is in the scenario. I want to argue on their behalf for this one because I, I, th- I think they're tr- just trying to be safe about things that maybe they aren't prepared to unpack. Like, I, I don't know that they have that you can reliably set up what happens to the metagame if you add lightning bolt. And given the new audience they're serving, like, I have to think there is some data driven thought that is shaping this policy to bring something that, like, Somebody on this team knows that when you add Mind's Desire, Jaws drop. And when you do it in the absence of Lightning Bolt and Swords to Plowshares, you've you've made a statement. You've said something with that decision. The problem is it's not clear to me exactly what they're saying. Like, I want to take their side and make the argument for them because they're obviously like, you don't get to that place without seeing some kind of goal. And I think the goal is like, I don't know, maybe arena players, they hit the frowny face more often in games where they get burned out. <laughs> so you want to make sure that, I, like, seriously, it could, it could be something that simple. That's just some kind of, you know, data-driven decision. And if if you share what is basing, if you share the foundation of this decision with me, then I'm willing to see your side of it and at least consider it. I, I just am having a hard time piecing together exactly what it is. So I'm trying to make that argument because the curious part of me wants to understand it. Because I think it is like a purposeful choice it's 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 just strange though. It, it's a strange place, a strange way to shape your format. So getting, but I think it, modern magic does that in a lot of ways, right? Like certainly yeah. the the trend is to making these engines, making these explosive effects, staying away from cheap interaction. And me personally, I'd rather have way more cheap interaction. But for some reason, this is the way we shape the game as a whole in this moment. So somebody thinks it's important to continue shaping historic's card pool in the same fashion. Well, 
I mean, that's that's baffling to me considering they're like, well, let's give one color all the good interaction and then, you know, kind of screw everyone else. Yeah, I also I also feel like new players hate having like spells ripped from their hand more than they hate having their creature lightning bolted. But I, I could be way off on that. Yeah, but I mean, there's also like a very solid contingent of people who like playing Inquisition and Thoughtseize as evident by modern and those decks being very popular, even when they're quite bad. And mm, I, I've I've been in that camp. I've played Jund in a lot of tournaments. I shouldn't have played Jund, you know. Uh, but we all have. When you so making making a, a cool alt art mind's desire, sure. Uh, I'm I'm not sure like what format that card sees play in right now, but there's definitely someone out there who wants it. And then you put it into historic. It's obviously going to turn some heads. I've not gone through Scryfall looking for stuff to make this work. I think my initial reaction is it's probably more of like a ramp thing and less of a ritual thing. Like there yeah. are, there's like Mox Amber and stuff like that, that you could try and go to for things like this. But I think mostly I would want to do like grow spiral, draw cards, and then play a bunch of cheap cards in a Mind's Desire, not like ritual combo kill you on turn three. But regardless, like maybe this, maybe this doesn't hit in Historic, but you have made it legal in historic. And now whenever you're thinking about what cards historic needs or wants, you have to consider this card and it's kind of the same for standard, but like, I guess the, the end result is like, Oh, we, we just, you know, ban it later instead of now. And maybe no one cares. Right. So sure. That, that is a way to go about things. And then I just don't know who you're serving at that point because you make it legal in the format and maybe you trick some people into crafting these minds desires or whatever, and then crafting some other stuff and building some decks. And they're like, well, this deck sucks. That sucks. Uh, I, I think that like that experience going through that learning process is definitely good for magic and it is fun for magic players, but you do that enough times. And I think people get super disappointed and minds desire mm. also just runs the risk of breaking at some point. So like, I think, I think it's just like a bad example of that sort of card to try and do this with. If, if you think 100% without a doubt like Mind's Desire is a trap so you're going to print it and make it legal and historic just to trick people like it's it's a bad version of that card to do with it. No, you, you just actually brought this into focus for me. I I know why this happened now. Cuz you can you can make Mind's Desire a mythic and nobody bats an eye and the effect of creating a mythic that a bunch of people cast is net positive towards the bottom line of arena pretty dramatically whereas making lightning bolt at common doesn't move the needle one way or another and still has the potential for, you know, uh, to be fair, some kind to of be fair, impact. bolt is rare. Okay. I, I think it has to be a mythic, right? Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be. I think that any time that you chop into people's wild card reserves is net positive. Okay. I, I guess I'm saying the gamble is worth it. If it's a mythic, you can, you can talk uh, yourself into, I can also just see yeah. like somebody in corporate being like, well, what's what's the card we're using to sell this on Arena then? Why are people going to be excited? We need a mythic that they're going to chase and it ending on Mind's Desire somehow. It there there's there's financial reasons to point things in this direction. And whenever I can't figure out the answer to something, you know what I look for. I look for the money and I try and figure out what dollars are to be made. And noting that this is a mythic, I think is a big part of the equation here. Sure. No, that's legit. And maybe it's like, you know, these these cards there's maybe like some weird choices like weather the storm or whatever, but like a lot of these cards are iconic and mind's desire is iconic. 
It does mm-hmm. have a lot of history behind it. And it fits the mold of what this group of cards is going for, I believe. And maybe there was not a, a good replacement for this. But I don't know. I mean, there's like Mind's Desire, Blue Sun Zenith, Time Warp, all at Mythic so far. So like, I don't know what their quota was for how many Mythics and how many of each color and, and all that sort of stuff. It just... Right. So like, they do the the anthology stuff. The the card choices are kind of dubious, whatever. You do... Uh, what was the, the draft sealed thing that had Muxus? Uh, jumpstart. Jumpstart. And it's like, well, we're going to ban 10 cards out of it. It's like, that's weird to me. And then you make this set and you're like, oh, we're going to ban seven cards out of it. That's also weird to me. At that point, it's just like, you know, why don't you either just like ban this or put in a card that will maybe, I don't know, not mess up your format, but. Yeah, com- com- I mean, communicate. Is there is there no cross communication going on where you can make these decisions before the release? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it is it's very confusing. I, I don't think that this ends up good for players either way. And if it does end up bad, them being like, oh, well, we can't have Lightning Bolt, but we can have this messed up card. It's like that also looks pretty bad. So, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And it's just like even even think about it in terms of something like Muxus, where it, it it exists as part of the metagame. Yeah, you can you can beat it back. There are applicable hate cards, which is which is great. But no one's really having fun with Muxus around. And I think having that be one of the cards that made it legal into historic was probably a mistake and to say that like muxes should be legal but lightning bolt cannot because lightning bolt would work the format too much is like fairly equivalent i think to the mind's desire thing and that's where i'm just like "Ah, that doesn't really make any sense to me yeah i'll i'll admit i'm playing devil's advocate to some extent the Um, devil does not need advocates brian i know why do i want to be on the devil's side just not a good person it's pretty clear yeah yeah, I'm just uh, so I'm checking my texts and <laughs> Nick texted me about like Define Strike. What the hell? Like, <laughs> so I said I said mostly iconic cards, but yeah, there's a random Define Strike there. There's a uh, Weather the Storm, Snakeskin Veil, which is just like brand new, and uh, Whirlwind Denial. I guess is like another weird one where it's like, yeah, this countered a couple crisis in its lifetime, but like it did. But yeah, what? some big counter magic situations, I guess, very iconic situations. Yeah, and then shock and the same thing with lightning bolts. It's just like, what the hell? I don't get that. Yeah, I I, I think there's been a shy away from communication that I really miss on these things. I, I feel like I used to have clearer pictures of goals and what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I, I think they uh, got sick of being beaten up by the community and having their words thrown against them and just kind of gave up on it. And it's tough because I understand where they're coming from, but uh, I miss it. I, I miss the good faith conversations. Dude, have you ever had two Death Shadows in play and your opponent's swords is one of them? I'm sh- I'm sure I must have. Uh, I-, I do remember a situation with a Death Shadow and an Invigorate very clearly, which mm, okay. did not go well. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, so it's, it's that kind of situation where I'm like, well, you know, maybe you should have Path instead of Swords in historic and maybe you don't want both of those cards in this set but whatever i don't really care two more cards i want to talk about that are in this set uh one is time warp i think that it is becoming clear that these cards are quite good in the the modern age of magic uh time warp is three you use sorcery target player takes an extra turn 
And I think that this is this is going to do things. It already saw play in Pioneer and some modern decks. Granted, those decks were still operating with uh, Omnath and Modern has things like Renin Six and Teferi, Jace the Mind Sculptor. So you're getting like a lot of Planeswalker value from this thing. But even Time Warp in basically any deck with like Nissa who shakes the world, I think is completely legit. Yep. Time Warp today is not the same card as when it was printed in 1997? Seven was going to be my guess. I don't know when Tempest actually came out. Okay. I'm going to go with 1997. Uh, I don't know if that's actually correct, but the world is just different. There's different types of cards. And the breaking point for me, I've always been high on Time Walks, but after Alvin's Epiphany, I was just like, the numbers on this card no longer matter. I don't care. Does it give me an extra turn? If the answer is yes, there's almost certainly a home for it. And it's about the context and the format. And I agree with you. As long as this is a thing, Time Warp is also a thing. Yep. Uh, last card is Abundant Harvest, where uh, I guess a lot of people hearing this name would be like, well, this sounds familiar. I don't, I don't actually know the text on this card. It's like, well, this card doesn't exist yet. It is in MH2. And this is going to be legal in historic, but not legal in modern until mh2 comes out i believe so weird everything's so weird g sorcery choose land or non-land reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a card of the chosen kind put that card into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order this is a one shot throwback to the enchantment abundance from urza saga this is awesome this is like this is a green cantrip and this is like so simple and so good that I am actually just like I read this card and I was like, this has it had to be printed somewhere already, right? Why isn't it just free though? I mean, I thought well, we established that green gets to do this for free or whatever it wants to. Yeah, it's true. If once upon a time we're still legal and then this card came out, you'd be like, why? What the hell? It, it is funny that this is the the Modern Horizons two version and we just had the way better version present in standard uh, not too long ago, only a year ago. But yeah, I, I think this card is cool. I think it's probably abusable in the right scenarios and you know, something like oops, all spells is going to maybe be able to play a land. And I don't know how that changes things, but I could see it being net beneficial. Uh, just having like the one land in your deck that you can always get might open up some kind of play pattern. Uh, I'd really have to unpack that. It seems like a, a unique effect for those decks to have access to, but also it's just a good, fair, clean cantrip, more reliably hit your land drops, cheat, your mana counts basically where it's a land early and it's a creature late or, you know, whatever non-land permanent late. So yeah, this is a cool card. I'm, I'm happy this exists. It's a much, much better addition to the world than once upon a time. And now I'm kind of sad, like, well, this could just be a standard card. If we even thought for a second, once upon a time could be, why can't this be? Yeah. Yeah, this, this seems like one of the cards where, you know, they're working on MH2 and then someone comes down, like looks through the card file and it's like, oh, actually, I'm going to steal this for my set, you know, and I, yeah. I guess it kind of happened. But yeah, I would I wouldn't mind having this in standard. It seems fine to me. Like it's when you're casting opt a lot of the time you're, you know, sometimes you're looking for something specific. Right. But a lot of the time it's like, well, I need mana or I need gas. And this is similar to that. And you know, you could play like four of this and like cut a land or two. And that's kind of cool. There's like Magecraft stuff going on now, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I like this card. I don't know how much it's going to show up in Historic. Like Opt doesn't really have 
uh, a place in a lot of these decks. Like cycling is on a lot of the cards that matter, so that kind of takes up like your your early game mana. And there's triumphs mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But I could definitely see, uh, you know, like something like Bant that doesn't have uh, a triumph maybe utilizing this. But we'll see. Yeah, that's an interesting application. Uh, I, I think your assessment is good. it's just like a good. Fairly flavorful, straightforward, cool card that you would assume already existed. It's also going to be gas when people are like, non-land, I need a relevant spell. And they hit like one of their 17 thought seizes or inquisitions. And it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't put these two in the same deck. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you should. Nah, just get lucky. It's nah. fine. That's going to happen. They're going to name land because they need gas and they're going to hit a dead card. It's going to be great. Well, should have played around it, right? I suppose. Anything that you want to see on this list. That I want to see added to historic? Yeah. Spell only, remember. Yeah. So it's the plowshares. <laughs> like we already went over it. Cheap, cheap interaction with creatures is what I feel like there's space for. And this was probably a golden chance. Like I said, I, I would even put swords or, or path is fine uh, above something like lightning bolt. But uh, nothing... No spells really jumped to mind that I'm like the format was missing this. The card that felt like it was missing for a long time time from Historic was Thoughtseize. They rectified that. So I don't really have anything that I'm banging down the door saying, please give us this card. You could maybe talk me into like Preordain if you wanted to get a little risky with it. I, I think I'd be okay with that. Mind's Desire, not risky. Preordain, super risky. Maybe because it goes well with the Mind's Desire. Is that the problem? Yeah, now now it's crossed the bridge to risky. Now that I know mine's desire is there. No, I mean like con- consistency is the problem there. Again, like it's insidious. I think the insidious problem is more challenging to deal with than the one that is just facially obvious, and that that's my concern. Yeah, no, I mean I I totally get that, but historic is kind of so far gone down that path with like all the random additions from various things and. Yeah. You know, the, the Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, now Inquisition problem where they're so far ahead of everyone else. And yeah, it's there's already a lot of insidious problems in Historic where like if you were curating a format from scratch, this is not what it would look like. <laughs> but they did, right? Like, they that's did. The they li- the they did. literally did. And this is not how I would have chosen to proceed, but here we are. Yup. Game. Good luck.